0: Vladimir Putin's backyard may soon include American forces. The lead starts right now. President Biden speaking with key U.S. allies discussing Russia's possible invasion of Ukraine as the Pentagon announces thousands of U.S. service members are on heightened alert. Plus, new signs the worst of this latest COVID wave may be over while the fight over how schools should respond is heating up. And a rookie cop, Killed while responding to a 911 domestic violence call, prompting a new focus on rising violent crime in America's largest cities. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start with breaking news in the world lead. President Joe Biden talking with European leaders about the very real chance of Russia invading Ukraine again. This call added late in the day to Biden's schedule, underscoring how the threat has escalated in recent days. The Pentagon also announcing this afternoon as many as 8,500 U.S. service members are now on heightened alert and have been told to be ready to deploy at uh, any moment. The here, Pentagon please. says if needed, those troops will join NATO forces in Eastern Europe and the alliance's effort to deter Russia's troop buildup near its border with Ukraine. We're covering this escalating tension, even a crisis on multiple fronts. CNN's Clarissa Ward is in Ukraine. Nick Robertson is in Moscow, Russia. Let's start with Caitlin Collins at the White House, however. Caitlin, do we know how close uh, the president may be to a decision on whether or not to send additional U.S. forces to Eastern Europe?
1: Well, Jake, it's a decision that could come as soon as this week. But what we do know is that as of today, President Biden hasn't made a final decision about that. Behind the scenes, they are getting the specifics ready in case he does make that call to bolster U.S. forces in Eastern Europe to increase those troop presence uh, as they are planning behind the scenes for what that would look like. Because, of course, the concern inside the administration is that an invasion could be imminent. And right now, the Pentagon says that Russia is not only not de-escalating the situation, Jake, they are adding force capability to Ukraine's border. Moments ago, President Biden phoning European leaders from the Situation Room as the crisis in Ukraine escalates. While we can't get into the mind uh, of President Putin, we are seeing the preparations that they're making at the border. Biden consulting the leaders of Germany, Italy, France, the United Kingdom, Poland, NATO, and the European Commission as he debates sending thousands
2: more U.S. troops to Eastern Europe. What we're telling these units to do is to be ready to go on a shorter Uh, timeline than what they were before. We are not deploying them now. Uh, We are not saying diplomacy is dead.
1: Up to 8,500 U.S. troops now on high alert. If Biden increases troop presence that close to Russia's doorstep, it would amount to a major shift in his approach. After last week, he said a troop buildup hinged on an invasion.
3: And, you know, we're going to fortify our NATO allies. I told him on the eastern flank, if in fact he does invade,
1: Overnight, the State Department ordering family members of staff to leave the U.S. embassy in Ukraine and encouraging Americans not to travel there, warning Russian military action would severely impact the embassy's ability to provide consular services, including assistance to U.S. citizens departing Ukraine. Biden considering the new moves after the British government accused Russia of plotting to install a pro-Russian leader in Ukraine.
4: This is very much part of the Russian toolkit. It runs the gamut from a large conventional uh incursion or invasion of ukraine to uh these kind of destabilizing activities in an attempt to to topple the government
1: republicans including the top gop lawmaker on the foreign affairs committee warning that president putin isn't taking the u.s seriously
4: i think this
3: has been a passive deterrence right i I don't i don't see putin changing his course of action it's getting very aggressive uh the noose is tightening around ukraine
1: and Jake, the White House says that American citizens who are in Ukraine right now should leave because there are no plans at this time for any kind of large scale military evacuation like what we saw in Afghanistan. And of course, this comes as House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is now requesting that they get an all members briefing on this growing crisis that's happening in Ukraine.
0: All right. Kalen Collins at the White House for us. Let's uh, bring in CNN's Clarissa Ward in Ukraine and Nick Robertson in Moscow. Uh, so Russia, Cl- Clarissa, first to you. Today, Ukrainian officials called it, quote, premature and excessively cautious for the State Department to pull non-essential staff from the U.S. embassy there in Kiev, where you are. They seem to be suggesting that the U.S. is overreacting. Um, Are they downplaying it?
5: Well, I mean, Jake, it's not just it's not just those one that one comment that came earlier from the foreign minister. Now we're seeing multiple Ukrainian officials weighing in on this, and they are clearly very, very unhappy. The prime minister saying, "To you know, please don't panic." He was concerned that this call uh, to reduce embassy staff or allow for families and non essential personnel to leave that that would have a knock on effect on the economy, on foreign investment here in Ukraine. We also saw President Zelensky take to his Facebook page again, issuing another plea to the Ukrainian people uh, not to panic, saying that he has everything under control. The foreign ministry went on to put a Uh, a statement on their website where they said there are 129 embassies and consulates here in Ukraine. And so far, only four countries have elected to reduce or scale down uh, some of their personnel. The statement reads, we are grateful to our international partners for soberly assessing the situation and not resorting to the premature evacuation measures. This is a real manifestation of solidarity, giving you a very strong sense there uh, that they are not pleased about this at all, Jake.
0: And Nick, Russia is also uh, trying to downplay accusations of an imminent invasion as, quote, stupid rhetorical provocations. So if there isn't an invasion imminent, how does Russia explain its massive troop buildup and coordination with rebel forces up and down the border with Ukraine?
6: Well, one piece of that the Russians are trying to explain, and we heard this from the uh, Kremlin spokesman earlier today, saying that uh, there is a massing of Ukrainian forces close to that eastern separatist enclave in Ukraine, the Donbass area, whereas pro-Russian separatists propped up by Moscow uh, are held up. they're saying, the Kremlin is saying that it's the Ukrainians that's massing for an attack. And some of the Donbass leaders have been on Russian television today putting uh, their position forward. But I think there was a very, very, very telling uh, statement put out by the foreign ministry spokeswoman today on her Telegram account really uh, coming in the last few minutes. And she is taking aim at that growing rift between the United States and Ukrainian officials. And she says, uh, on the one hand, you've got Ukrainian defense officials, defense security officials saying they see no reason to alert the fact that there is an imminent full-scale Russian invasion, but also quite, quoting the Pentagon spokesman saying that there is um, no no de-escalation by the Russians. And she makes the contrast. And this is really cutting and gets to the heart of how the Kremlin likes to work. And she says that the U.S. is trying to morally or rather un- rather undermine the morale of Ukrainians and goes on to say about U.S. politicians do, do they really care about the mothers uh, in Ukraine if they don't care about their own mothers back home? So the, the the Kremlin here and the foreign ministry really seeming to try to open that tiny division that's happened. So with all this tension, this is what they appear to be explo- exploiting at the moment. Jake.
0: And, and Caitlin, just last week at Biden's news conference, uh, his tone was uh, threatening sanctions, severe economic sanctions. He said sanctions like Putin has never seen before. But now we're talking about troops being deployed to Eastern Europe. What what changed?
1: Yeah, the White House says it's not a shift because they say that they never ruled out the idea of bolstering forces in Eastern Europe if there had not been an invasion yet. But that was the way that the president was speaking about it at the press conference, saying if Putin did invade, they would bolster the U.S. troop presence in Romania, in Poland, they talked about uh, the idea if they moved, then you would see. Uh, the U.S. fortified NATO allies. Of course, that's what's under consideration today. That's what the Pentagon confirmed. President Biden was briefed on at Camp David this weekend, these options that he has. And so the idea that it's not a shift, it, it is a change, because if they do end up going forward with this decision and you see an increased U.S. troop presence in those Baltic states, in Estonia, in Latvia, in Lithuania, that is, of course, right on Putin's doorstep. And that is what Putin has been trying to avoid and what he has been complaining about. So it would be a much more forceful approach by this White House, by this Biden administration, compared to the more restrained stance that they had, where they were kind of trying not to provoke Russia before. And now it, it seems like the calculus has shifted.
0: Hmm. Caitlin Collins at the White House, Clarissa Ward in Ukraine, Nick Robertson in Russia. Thanks to all of you. I want to bring in retired Brigadier General Peter Zwack. He was a senior defense official and attache to the Russian Federation when Russia invaded and seized Crimea in 2014. General, thanks for joining us. The Pentagon says some 8,500 U.S. service members are on heightened alert for possible deployment to Eastern Europe to join NATO forces, not in Ukraine, but in those NATO member states. What do you make of this decision? Could this be seen as provocative uh,
7: to Putin? Uh, Thank you uh, for bringing me on. Uh, When we uh, talk about provocative, uh, we need to take a look at the Russian set um, the uh, reported 100,000 plus, it's probably uh, many thousands more than that, with all the logistics and still troops pouring in from uh, Central and Eastern Military District. And we all heard the reports of them uh, uh, bringing in troops through uh, Lukashenko's uh, Belarus, uh, threatening uh, the Ukrainian uh, northern flank. Um, Jake, uh, uh, Ukraine borders four NATO countries. On our, our allies are, are really worried, and there's a lot to be worried about. An invasion, um, if they actually go, will be bloody, no matter how successful or not it will be, and could spill over. And the 8,000 forces plus other allies, and this isn't just the United States, and that is very, very important to emphasize to Moscow, um, um, allows, if you will, first of all, to assure our allies, like the Balt's. We have NATO up there in small amounts, but we don't have Mm -hmm. a big presence in there and certainly not a big ground offensive threat to Moscow.
0: So, you know, General Fiona Hill, uh, a U.S. uh, intelligence officer with expertise in Russia and Eurasia. She served on the National Security Council under under President Trump. She wrote an op-ed in The New York Times today and said, quote, right now, all signs indicate that Mr. Putin will lock the U.S. into an endless tactical game take more chunks out of Ukraine and exploit all the frictions and fractures in NATO and the European Union, unquote. Now you've been dealing with Russia and Putin's influence for decades. Do you agree with Fiona Hill's assessment?
7: I have uh, the greatest regard for uh, Dr. Hill uh, as an associate and a friend. Um, I think here, uh, there are two things that that I uh, take. Uh, I understand the salami slicing, if you will, that, she, that, that the Russians could possibly to take chunks and bites. But I think right now, Jake, the whole world is watching. This is unambiguous, like it was when I was in Moscow in 2014. We didn't know what was going on in the beginning. whole world, and no matter what the justification and the provocations, and, and uh, this would be naked aggression. Um, um, that would put Russia into a pariah s- status that they should not want, including their moneyed interests and their people. So yes, uh, there is that. But I believe the first major bite they take if they do it, whether it's the rest of the Donbass or driving down to Crimea or something else, puts them now, uh, the world is now where as to their makeup. And, and the fact that we are... Uh, prepared, if you will, to put troops into into NATO allies, I think is, mm-hmm. is, is, is right. The other point, Jake, very quickly, is she makes a point that this needs to go to the United Nations. And it, it, yes, we'll take it to Security Council where Russia and China have a veto, but you take it out into the General Assembly and you basically lay it all out. Uh, and Russia is getting censured, if you will, and that environment, I don't think that they, they want that, certainly not their moneyed interests. This is a time for them to back off. They've made their point.
0: Retired Brigadier General Peter Zwack, thank you so much, sir. Appreciate your time. Check your mail. COVID tests from the federal government are starting to arrive in mailboxes everywhere. Just in time for some good news about the pandemic. Ben, the big name in Donald Trump's orbit who is now talking to the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. Stay with us. Some encouraging COVID news tops are healthily today. Dr. Anthony Fauci says the U.S. is now, quote, going in the right direction when it comes to containing the Omicron surge. Fauci says he expects cases will rapidly decline in the coming weeks. But that does not mean, of course, that we are in the clear just yet, as CNN's Alexandra Field reports. Deaths, which we all now know are a lagging indicator, are still on the rise in the U.S. (laughs)
8: Free COVID test kits and free high-quality masks starting to make their way to Americans as Omicron cases fall off sharply in the Northeast, a sign that the worst of this wave could be behind us soon.
9: There are still some states in the southern states and western states that continue to go up. But if the pattern follows the trend that we're seeing in other places, such as the Northeast, I believe that you will start to see a turnaround throughout the entire country. The strategy
8: for what comes next is coping.
9: Control means you're not eliminating it, you're not eradicating it, but it gets down to such a low level into the general respiratory infections that we have learned to live with.
8: But the death toll climbs, again averaging more than 2,000 daily. With vaccinated people experiencing mild symptoms, if any at all, there are more calls to change the thinking when it comes to restrictions.
10: It's time at this crucial, pivotal moment to better calibrate harms, to weigh the harms of The virus itself against the harms of the restrictions.
8: Virginia's governor saying parents can opt into or out of school mask requirements as seven major districts file suit to stop the order. Schools shouldn't get rid of masks yet, according to former FDA commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb.
2: So to withdraw it right at the peak of the epidemic, I think it's imprudent. We should wait. I think within two weeks, we'll be able to make that decision.
8: Gottlieb later tweeting, as conditions improve in the U.S., we must be willing to relax provisions as aggressively as we implemented them. The fury over pandemic protocols erupting again over the weekend in an anti-vaccine mandate march in Washington, D.C., marked by outrageous and bigoted remarks.
5: Even in Hitler's Germany, you could You can cross the Alps into Switzerland. You can
8: hide in an
9: attic like Anne Frank did.
8: While public figures continue to traffic in misinformation, basketball Hall of Famer John Stockton falsely suggesting vaccines have killed more than 100 athletes. A statement with no basis, in fact. Gonzaga University now pulling his season tickets for refusing to mask up at games. And Jake, there is new data underscoring the tremendous and ongoing toll that the pandemic has had on restaurants. The National Restaurant Association saying 88 percent of restaurants are reporting a decline in demand in just the last few weeks, something they attribute to the Omicron surge. Jake.
0: All right, Alexander Field in New York, New York for us. Thank you so much. Here to discuss Dr. Megan Raney, She's the associate dean of public health at Brown University. Uh, Dr. Raney, good to see you. Cases in the U.S. are down 15 percent from last week. And on CNN this afternoon, Dr. Fauci said he expects cases in the U.S. could mirror the decline that we saw in South Africa, which really was a very rapid decline in daily cases once the variant turned the corner from over uh, once the country turned the corner from the Omicron variant. Do you expect to see the same thing happen here? And if so, how soon?
11: So I expect us to see the same thing starting in the Northeast already. I ex- Because the Northeast is so much of our population, we'll see on a countrywide basis that cases drop. But at the same time, cases are still rising in much of the country. So we are not yet out of the woods. The other part, of course, as you mentioned earlier, are that cases are only part of what we're worried about Equally concerning are hospitalizations, intensive care unit stays, and deaths. And even in the Northeast, our hospitals are still quite overwhelmed from that combination of sick, unvaccinated COVID patients, and of course, all of the other medical and surgical problems for which care has been put off for the last two years. So even if the Omicron case wave has peaked, the burden on the healthcare system has not.
0: Uh, as cases and hospitalizations start to fall, Um, we're still seeing deaths increase. Now, we know deaths are a lagging indicator. First come the cases, then come the hospitalizations, then come from the deaths. How much longer do you expect to see an an increase in daily deaths from COVID with the uh, cases and hospitalization numbers going down?
11: So it's tough to know because Omicron is, of course, a different variant from Delta or from the earlier variants of covid but I would expect that we'll still continue to see hospitalizations, excuse me, deaths rise for another couple of weeks and then hopefully will start to decrease. There have been some preliminary reports that deaths are happening a little bit earlier with Omicron than they had with prior variants. Of course, we also now have better treatments, so we may be able to stave off death for more folks.
0: Dr. Fatsy also said on CNN this afternoon that the worst case scenario is that after Omicron, we get another dangerous variant that can evade vaccines. What is the likelihood of that happening, do you think?
11: (laughs) I wish I had a crystal ball and could tell you definitively, but I think we would be naive to not expect another variant. I mean, I remember the day before Thanksgiving telling people that Delta was showing just tremendous evolutionary uh, strength and was overcoming all of the other new variants that were coming along. And then Thanksgiving Day happened and Omicron uh, was announced by our colleagues in South Africa This moment with the Omicron surge peaking in much of the country and us heading into that downward curve of cases is exactly the moment when we need to be proactive about preparing for future surges so that we don't get caught in this again. The fact that testing kits and masks are arriving now in households across the United States, it's a travesty. We've known for almost two years now that those things were needed And this is the moment to be ready so that if and when another variant does pop up, we know what to do and we have the resources to do it.
0: A source tells CNN that the FDA is considering limiting the authorization of certain monoclonal antibody treatments that are not as effective against Omicron. What's the thinking behind that?
11: I mean, it makes sense. Uh, We should not be giving people treatments that don't work. And of course, There is no treatment that is completely without risk of harm. There can be side effects from those monoclonal antibodies. They're also expensive and they're difficult to administer. We shouldn't be giving them if they don't work against Omicron. So I would thoroughly support the FDA limiting that. I will put a pin, though, in the fact that it's important for us to make those monoclonal antibody treatments that do work, make them widely available, and ditto for things like Paxlovid, that new Pfizer pill. That people can take within the first few days after being diagnosed with covid to help stave off hospitalization and severe disease it is critically important for us to make uh, adequate supplies of those available to get people testing quickly and to work hard to overcome racial ethnic and socioeconomic disparities in who gets access to these potentially life-saving treatments
0: dr megan Raney, thanks so much appreciate your time he is the only member of trump's cabinet who has spoken to the January 6th committee that we know of what we know about former Attorney General Bill Barr's meeting. Stay with us. In our politics lead, the January 6th special House committee has been talking to former President Trump's Attorney General William Barr as part of a, quote, preliminary discussion, according to a source. CNN's Ryan Nobles joins us now live from the Capitol. Ryan... Attorney General Barr left his post on December 23rd, 2020, about a week after the draft executive order that would have seized voting machines was dated. Is the committee discussing that with Attorney General Barr? It doesn't seem that they are at this point, Jake. Uh, The
12: committee just received this memo recently as part of that tranche of documents that came from the National Archives after winning that Supreme Court case Their conversation with William Barr, I'm told, happened several weeks ago, and it was an informal interview. There wasn't a lot of specifics that were tied to it at this point, but that doesn't mean it's not a conversation that they could have with Barr in the very near future. The committee is, of course, very interested in Barr's role in everything that was taking place after the 2020 election as the former president and his allies were peddling these false accusations about the election lie. And you'll remember, Jake, that shortly before he stepped down as attorney general, General William Barr made it clear that he saw no direct evidence of voter fraud that would have been enough to change the results of the election. That was something that made the former president very upset. And we now know, as these investigations have played out, that Trump was putting heavy pressure on the Justice Department to attempt to intervene and try and find this fraud that was really nowhere to be found. Jake.
0: The former Republican Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, uh, made some rather shocking comments uh, about the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection, saying that they will potentially face jail time if Republicans take the House uh, this fall. Uh, How are members of the committee responding? Well, Liz Cheney,
12: who's the vice chair of the committee and is a Republican uh, and is someone who the Cheney family at one time was close with Newt Gingrich, especially when he was Speaker of the House, she is the person that's responded from the committee. And she tweeted a response to Gingrich uh, and it said in part, quote, this is what it looks like when the rule of law unravels and a suggestion that basically Gingrich just throwing out claims that really aren't based in any kind of fact, that somehow uh, a dually impaneled congressional investigation uh, does not have the ability to conduct oversight, which is exactly what this committee is doing. And we should also point out, Jake, that there has been a lot of litigation about the conduct of this committee already. Uh, The former president, Donald Trump, his allies have gone to great lengths to attempt to sue, to prevent the committee from doing their work. So far, the committee has won every single one of those laws So it's a bit head scratching uh, that the former Speaker of the House would suggest that somehow they're breaking the law, Jake.
13: Yeah,
0: I'm not sure what the opposite of virtue signaling is, but it seems like this is what that was. Ryan Nobles, thank you so much. Joining us to discuss CNN legal analyst and former federal prosecutor Jennifer Rogers. Jennifer, let's turn back to former Attorney General Barr. He's a big piece of this puzzle. Are you surprised that he's had some discussions with the committee?
10: I'm not, Jake. You know, he is someone who had a line, I think. I mean, he did a lot of unraveling of the rule of law himself while he was attorney general, but there was a line that he wouldn't cross. And apparently it was this election fraud nonsense that the former president was trying to foist on him after the election. So I'm not surprised he's willing to talk to them. He also, of course, in a very John Bolton-like move, has a book coming out. So presumably he may also be about to disclose some of this in his his book and maybe wants to kind of tease some interest in that. So I'm not that surprised. The question will be how much will he talk? You know, there's no executive privilege we know now. There's no attorney-client privilege there. So he really needs to, under the law, if they subpoena him, share everything he knows. And it remains to be seen whether he'll do that or not.
0: Fellow CNN legal analyst uh, Ellie Honig tweeted this, quote, It's now been 40 days since the House of Representatives held former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows in contempt of Congress, and he f- referred the case to the Department of Justice. The Supreme Court last week firmly rejected Trump's executive privilege claims over January 6th related documents. Time for the Department of Justice to make a call, Honig says. Now, it did take the Justice Department about a month before they proceeded to indict Steve Bannon after the House Referred that to them. Do you think it's taking longer with Meadows because, A, as a former chief of staff, he has more claim of his executive privilege than Bannon did. And B, he did cooperate at least somewhat with the committee before he decided to not cooperate.
10: I do think it's taking longer for those two reasons, but I also think that now that the Supreme Court has has issued, issued its ruling, it's possible that they're giving him a little bit more time. You know, maybe Meadows now comes back to the table. The select committee certainly would rather have him cooperating and giving them information than have him criminally charged and give them no information. So it may be also that the recent decision is slowing things down to see if maybe they can reach agreement after all, which doesn't really impact whether he's chargeable or not. But I think DOJ would consider that very strongly in their charging decision.
0: Uh, Let's listen to this blatant admission from recently subpoenaed 2020 Trump campaign advisor, Boris Epstein.
2: Yes, I was part of the process to make sure there were alternate electors for when, as we hoped, the challenges to the seated electors would be heard and would be successful per the 12th Amendment of the Constitution
9: and the Electoral Count Act.
0: Those, of course, were not alternate electors. They were fraudulent electors. They had not been elected by anybody. Does Epstein uh, going on MSNBC and admitting it put him in even more legal jeopardy?
10: Yeah, it does. You know, to the extent he has a lawyer, and I sure hope he does, that lawyer probably was pulling out his or her hair listening to that. I mean, he not only admitted being part of what he called the process, but I would call the scheme or the plot or the conspiracy. But he gave his defense as to why, you know, because, oh, it was a a just-in-case scenario. We were just getting our ducks in a row. Well, that's complete and utter nonsense because, as you said, Jake, this was not a document that hedged at all. Well, two of the states sort of did. The other five just said, here are our duly chosen electors. You know, it was a fraud. It was uh, a forgery. So he really does put himself in jeopardy there. And uh, it certainly was a mistake.
0: Jennifer Rogers, thanks so much. Appreciate it. While the Pentagon is focused on the threat of a Russian invasion, the U.S. military is firing missiles to stop a different threat. That's next. In our worldly today, as fears of war escalate along the Ukraine-Russia border, the U.S. is fending off actual missiles elsewhere. Iran-backed Houthi rebels in Yemen launched two ballistic missiles toward Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates early this morning. The missiles appeared to target an air base that the U.S. military uses. The Pentagon now confirms the U.S. military intercepted those missiles. And video shows fighter jets destroying the missile launcher. CNN's Sam Kiley is in Abu Dhabi for us. Sam seems like this was a rather close call.
9: A very close call indeed. I think Jake, uh, the second in seven days. It was uh, a week ago on Monday today uh, that three people were killed in a missile or drone strike uh, launched by the Houthis. Also very close to Abu Dhabi, they promised more strikes, uh, and that is exactly what they've attempted now. According to the Pentagon, both uh, Patriot missiles from uh, the U.S. base there in Dafra and other anti-missile missile units of the Emiratis engaged these two incoming missiles. And there's some remarkable video footage uh, of these missiles actually being shot down by uh, what the Pentagon said was a multiple launch of these uh, protective defensive. Missile systems. The Emiratis have uh, pen- uh, Patriot. They've got Thad. They've got a wide range of U.S. manufactured uh, anti-missile missiles, precisely for uh, this sort of eventuality. It, and and the weird thing for the Emirati perspective is that they're being sucked into a war, Jake, that they thought they had extracted themselves from back in 2020, Jake.
0: Yeah, and let's talk about that because obviously our viewers know. Uh, that the Iran-backed Houthi rebels in Yemen are fighting uh, the Saudi-backed coalition that the U.S. has been a part of. Um, how did the U.A.A. end up uh, as the target, or were they targeting the, the Americans
9: in the UAE? They were targeting both. I think that's very clear that the, the Dhafra Air Base has not only got uh, U.S. forces, it's got British forces, and it's got Emirati forces, and it is a very important strategic Uh, location in the Middle East used for operations by those three different nations uh, around the Middle East. Now the Emiratis have been accused by the Houthis, Jake, of stepping back into the Yemeni quagmire that they extracted their own military from back in 2020 by supporting a militia on the ground that was successful on the battlefield against the Houthis. So that is the principal allegation and there is independent confirmation for that. But you rightly point out there also that the Iranians have been backing the Houthis. It's Iranian technology that would have been used in these missiles, Jake. Yeah,
0: Sam Kyrley, thanks so much. Appreciate your time. A new push to end gun violence after a horrific weekend that saw a rookie cop and an eight-year-old girl gunned down. Stay with us. In our national, a jarring weekend of gun violence across the United States. In some cases, police officers, even an eight-year-old girl caught in the crossfire. One of those awful crime scenes in New York City, as CNN's Bryn Gingrass reports.
14: A weekend of senseless gun violence. Children and police officers again among the victims. The family of 22-year-old Jason Rivera is heartbroken. Fly high, my beautiful angel, his widow writing on Instagram. The NYPD rookie shot dead while responding to a 911 domestic call Friday. His partner, Wilbert Mora, is critically injured. The suspect was shot by a third officer and the NYPD confirms died today.
6: Recovered at that scene is a Glock 45 high capacity magazine, which holds up to 40 additional rounds. The man
14: among five officers shot in New York City this month. The first month in office for Mayor Eric Adams.
3: Officers are doing heroic work getting guns off the streets but traffickers keep the guns coming. That must end.
14: Today Adams is demanding action laying out what he calls a blueprint to end gun violence. It includes reinstating a plainclothes police unit to go after guns on the streets and focus on the flow of firearms into the city. The gun that killed Rivera was reported stolen from Baltimore in 2017.
15: We will
3: not surrender our city to the violent few. We're going to go back and we won't go back to the bad old days. We're going to get trigger pullers off the streets and guns out of their hands.
14: In Houston, authorities believe an assault-type weapon was used to kill a deputy who was conducting a traffic stop this weekend. Authorities are still looking for the suspect who suddenly fired at 47-year-old Charles Galloway, the 12-year veteran being remembered as a mentor.
16: There's a lot of, of very broken-up officers who he met a lot in their lives because he was the one that was sitting in the front seat with them. He was the one that was teaching them what to do and how to get home safely to their families.
14: Another officer shot in Washington, D.C. this weekend, treated and released from the hospital. But in Chicago, gun violence took the life of an eight-year-old girl. Melissa Ortega was walking with her guardian when she was hit by a stray bullet.
10: I don't care who your target
13: was, you targeted that little girl. Because if you weren't targeting that little girl, she'll be still here living today. And the ain't and everybody that's targeting people, what you targeting them for? Because when you miss, you hit our babies.
14: And now New York City will honor a man who showed so much promise.
6: I want y'all to, to like To
13: hear me, hear my voice, and know that, yo, y'all, y'all gonna get through it.
14: Rivera joined the NYPD to bring together police and the community, a community now mourning his death. And the funeral for Rivera is set for later this week. As far as Adams' plan, the plainclothes officers going after these guns is set to be on the streets in the next three weeks, according to Adams, targeting neighborhoods where about 80 percent of the crime is happening. But again, he says this has to involve more people, all city agencies, district attorneys, judges, to keep these violent criminals behind bars. Adams, Jake, also making a plea to the federal government to pass common-sense gun laws, basically to stop the flow of illegal firearms going through all these different states, not just here in New York. Jake.
0: Bryn Grass in New York, thanks so much. Appreciate it. More than 8,000 American service members are on standby right now, just in case they need to be deployed to Eastern Europe. Is that enough? Is that the right thing to do? We'll ask a key lawmaker next. Welcome to The Lead, I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, the check is not in the mail. The IRS admits it is in crisis mode, with millions of returns waiting to be processed, and tax season has barely even started. Plus, hall of shame. NBA legend and former Dream Teamer John Stockton's anti-mask stance lands him on the sidelines, where he is now spouting deranged anti-vaccine conspiracy theories, as frustration over COVID restrictions mounts from every side of the political divide and Leading this hour, ready to deploy. The Pentagon announcing this afternoon roughly 8,500 U.S. service members are on heightened alert right now, ready to be sent to Eastern Europe at a moment's notice in case Russia invades Ukraine. On the diplomatic side, President Biden just wrapped up a call with European leaders in hopes of convincing Vladimir Putin to not send his forces into Ukraine. As CNN's Oren Lieberman reports for us now, President Biden is also sending in another round of Lethal aid to Ukraine, all part of an attempt to ramp up pressure on Putin.
2: The United States has taken steps to heighten the readiness of its forces at home and abroad.
16: The Pentagon preparing for a potential deployment of military forces to Europe, putting as many as 8,500 U.S. troops on heightened alert.
2: The United States would be in a position to rapidly deploy additional brigade combat teams, logistics, medical, aviation, intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance transportation and additional capabilities into europe
16: most of the troops would be part of the nato response force but the Pentagon making clear it's preparing for other contingencies as well plights packed with lethal aid and ammunition from the u.s arriving in ukraine over the weekend part of the latest 200 million dollar security package approved by the biden administration more is on the way With U.S. approval, Eastern European allies are sending U.S. weapons to Ukraine to bolster the country's self-defense against a potential Russian invasion. That includes Javelin, anti-tank missiles, and Stinger, anti-aircraft missiles. NATO countries are already on the move, sending fighter jets and ships to the region. We already have deployed
0: battle groups, uh, uh, NATO multinational battle groups, to the three Baltic countries and Poland. So we have stepped up. uh, But this is defensive.
16: NATO is not threatening uh, uh, Russia. Russia amassing more than 100,000 troops near Ukraine's borders, including fighter jets and tanks, the tools for a massive military offensive. Russian weapons have also been rolling into Belarus ahead of joint exercises there next month, which some analysts worry could be the cover for an invasion of Ukraine. The Kremlin spokesman said the risk of conflict is very high, higher than before but blamed the West for the tension. The map looks set for war, even with diplomacy still on the table. France, Germany, Russia and Ukraine are set to meet for talks on Wednesday, while the U.S. has been in near constant communication with its European allies. But concerns of conflict are growing. The State Department authorized the departure of non-essential U.S. personnel and families from Ukraine. England did the same one day later. Ukraine says the move is premature, while Russia has accused the West of hysteria. The Pentagon has made clear that it's also keeping its options open for the movement of troops, saying that it could also shift troops that are already in Europe, meaning that's one more possibility for the buttressing, the strengthening of the eastern flank of NATO, facing Russia with their own buildup of troops. Jake?
0: All right, Arne Lieberman at the Pentagon for us. Thank you so much. Joining us live to discuss CNN senior international correspondent, Matthew Chant, who is reporting for us live from Kiev, Ukraine. And Matthew, the, the president and the prime minister are asking people not to panic. The foreign affairs ministry calling it premature for the U.S., U.K. and other countries to pull embassy staff from Kiev. What else are you hearing from the Ukrainian government today? They seem rather unhappy.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a, a fair characterization of of their attitude at the moment. There's been frustrations and tensions, of course, under the surface, you know, simmering away between the U.S. and Ukraine over a whole range of issues. You know, the the timing of sanctions, the 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 pace of of military aid to the country from from the U.S. But you know, over the past couple of you know days, particularly with this issue of the uh, the word to the embassy to. Uh, downsides and to move out some of its non-essential staff and to order the families to leave. That's that's really sort of left Ukrainian officials from the officials I've been speaking to at the uh, you know, in, in in the sort of close circle of the, of the leadership uh, really um, sort of distressed, disappointed, disillusioned was one of the words that was used about the the attitude of the Biden administration, the US towards Ukraine. One of them said, and I'm sort of slightly sort of. Um, you know, trying to characterize what he said, he said, "Look, you know for decades the u s has been telling us to stand against the Russians. We have your back. we're here for you. Uh, but at the first sign of pressure, rising pressure the, the russia sorry, the United States becomes the first country to to turn tail and to and to downsize." Uh, its, its it's embassy staff. And he he said that it sent a very negative symbol, uh, uh, signal uh, to people in the country, because of course there are lots of people in this country that are pro-Russian, that think that, you know, actually you, the Ukraine should not have made the decision to put itself on the side of the West. Uh, and now those people are saying, look, we told you, the Americans don't stand by people who they say they're back. And it's really, uh, in the words of this Ukrainian official, undermined Uh, the case for Western support in this this country, Jake. Well, but, you know, conversely,
0: the Pentagon is readying as many as 8,500 U.S. service members to go to Eastern Europe to stand uh, in NATO-allied countries. Uh, Isn't that something that Ukrainian officials want to hear?
4: Yeah, they've said, and actually I've just got off the phone a second ago before I came on the show talking to a senior Ukrainian official about the reaction to that, and he's saying look you know we're very happy for the baltics we're very happy for eastern europe that they're getting this commitment this military commitment of protection uh, from the united states being renewed and being bolstered but what they don't want to see is for ukraine to be in his words turned into the no man's land between the buffer state the no man's land between uh, nato and 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 russia of course that's you know geopolitically in many ways that's what ukraine is but the ukrainian officials are not happy with that status. They think that if Ukraine falls, if Ukraine is invaded, then that will have a massively negative impact on the rest of the Western alliance.
0: All right, Matthew Chance reporting live for us in Kiev, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Joining us now live to discuss Republican Congressman Mike McCall of Texas. He's the ranking Republican on the House Foreign Affairs uh, Committee. Congressman, good to see you. The Pentagon says that the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, has ordered as many as 8,500 U.S. service members To prepare to deploy to Eastern Europe, CNN's reporting suggests they could be sent specifically to Baltic states or other parts of Eastern Europe. Yesterday, you said that you don't think Putin sees the U.S. as serious about this threat. Will this potential troop deployment, could that change his mind? Well, I think it
3: helps, and I'm glad the administration is finally listening. We've been urging them to do these uh, joint exercise operations with NATO in these NATO countries like Poland, Poland the Baltic States, Romania, Bulgaria, that would be a, a showing of deterrence. Uh, prior to this, it's been very passive uh, deterrence. And with respect to the 8,500 troops, uh, remember they, it's very conditioned on NATO requesting, but secondly, um, only until after an in- invasion, which you know, your uh, analyst talked about President Zelensky, his frustration is that whether you're talking about the sanctions or these joint exercises Uh, on Russia's western flank, uh, it's all predicated after an invasion when he thinks it should be done before to
0: prevent an invasion from happening in the first place. Right. Russia is adding to its presence at the Ukrainian border. If Russian forces, even just a a few dozen, should cross into Ukraine's sovereign territory, what do you think uh, the president should do? Should he send U.S. troops directly into Ukraine? What do you want him to do and what is the red line? Well, Ukraine's not a NATO country. They have a right to self-determination.
3: I I don't think uh, the president's going to put troops in uh, Ukraine. And, and that's why we've been calling for deterrence. Remember, this started in last March. The $200 million being talked about was held up by the White House. Uh, it was uh, on the desk last November and just now recently released. I have a bill that I hope will be bipartisan for immediate lethal Aid package to Ukraine, uh, but we also have to have a showing of force that Putin understands that this won't come without a high price, and we haven't done that thus far. When you look at the map where the Russian troops are, they're they're very yeah, they're gonna be they're in Belarus. They're doing joint exercises with lethal weapons. It's just north of Kyiv, which is the capital. Uh, we see an invasion likely taking place, also on the east side of. Uh, and central where the Donbass region is. and Then finally, their other troop deployment is near the Black Sea, near Crimea. I think overall, Putin wants to, he wants the breadbasket back. He's always wanted Ukraine. I think he sees weakness, particularly after Afghanistan, Um, and a lot of this is about energy and what happened with Nord Stream 2 pipeline, but also his control of the Black Sea
0: and the Mediterranean and the Suez Canal. So you're asking for a tough, question, tough sanctions to be imposed now uh, before any Russian invasion as deterrence. Now, obviously, those sanctions would hit Russia in the energy sector you talk about, which would immediately cause gas prices to skyrocket. Um, is that something that you're willing to explain to the American people that they might need to pay higher natural gas and gasoline prices in order to deter Russia from invading Ukraine? Well,
3: I think it's an easy explanation. Why did the president waive congressionally mandated sanctions to allow Putin to complete his pipeline into Europe, making them dependent on dirty Russian energy? It seems to me because we be we the largest.
0: Because, well, just I mean because to answer Germany your question, because uh, Germany wanted them to let Nord Stream mm-hmm. 2 go forward and they don't want to alienate Germany, which is a key member of NATO. I mean, you know the answer, but just for our viewers, that that's the reason why the Biden administration says they... They uh, didn't do that.
3: That's true. Whereas every other nation in NATO doesn't really want this. The former Chancellor of Germany was a chief lobbyist for Gazprom, which is a Russian state enterprise that is completing Putin's pipeline. I think the better strategy, if you want to talk about gas prices, why why are we shutting down Keystone Pipeline? Why aren't we? Um, we're the largest uh, uh, exporter of LNG which is clean natural gas, uh, we could be exporting that to Europe. And that's what most Europeans want. They don't want Putin's pipeline, which makes them vulnerable to Russian aggression. And I think that's the bottom line. We uh, passed that almost overwhelmingly. And Jake, I had an amendment on the national defense authorization to strip the presidential waiver. It passed on the House floor unanimously by a voice vote. Uh, now it's been politicized, uh, but I think that would send a deterrent message along with the sanctions to say, "Look, if if you're if you will not stop this aggression, we're going to go forward with sanctions. We'll lift them if you agree not to invade."
0: The State Department, as you know, um, is reducing staffing at its embassy in Ukraine and ordering some family members of embassy staff to evacuate. Um, but they're also uh, the State Department encouraging Americans. Who are in ukraine to leave ukraine this is upsetting the ukrainian government as you heard from uh, our earlier uh report um do you think it's the right move or the wrong move i can't help but think that it's probably influenced by the fact of what happened in afghanistan when uh people said there weren't sufficient warnings for people to get out before uh the worst happened
3: yeah well i think it does demonstrate how serious the situation is and i've been briefed on the russian plan in the classified space it's very serious and the timetable is very short and that's important right now i think it's a, a safe measure to protect uh, embassy employees but it also shows you how serious the threat is coming from russia uh, right now that we're anticipating that this very likely could uh happen this jake to put it in perspective would be the largest invasion in europe since world war ii and to your analyst comments this is not just about ukraine in a vacuum this is about all of our foreign nation adversaries, you know, is looking at this very closely. President Xi um, is looking to see if Putin can invade Ukraine and get away with it. He's going to look at Taiwan. The Ayatollah is building a bomb. Uh, Kim Jong-un just fired off two rockets this month that they claim were hypersonics. Um, this is really a flashpoint now,
0: and it's, it's not just limited to, to Ukraine. Congressman Mike McCall, Republican from Texas, thank you, sir. Good to see you, as always. It is getting ugly on the left. Democrats censuring one of their own, and now one senator is piling on, and then restriction exhaustion. At what point is it safe to start pulling off the masks and trying to live with COVID? In our politics lead, embattled Democratic Senator Kirsten Cinema, formally reprimanded by her own home state allies, Arizona's Democratic Party, voted to censure Cinema after she refused to vote in favor of changing the Senate's filibuster rules so as to pass the election reform legislation that all 50 Democrats, including her, supported. And now because of that, she could be facing a primary challenger. Let's discuss with my political panel... Van, is that censure really necessary, do you think?
13: Well, um, I think her, she's got some very frustrated constituents, and that's one way for them to express themselves. Um, I think that the challenger is going to be inevitable at this point. But if I were her, I would think to myself, the whole world's looking at me. So far, all I've done is say no in the name of bipartisanship. I would expect her to step forward now, where is the bipartisan deal that she thinks can happen? Uh, maybe there is concern about you know, the, the Electoral Count Act, other things. She's got to go forward now and say, I can make the bipartisanship work in the name of voting rights. Otherwise, all she did was uh, stop this party from trying to rescue democracy and then offer no solutions and no leadership. And that's why she deserves a primary challenge.
0: And Kristen, this is interesting because there, there are eight members of Congress currently who have recently been censured by their own state's party. Except for Cinema, all of them are Republicans who took stances against Donald Trump. So what does that say about the makeup of Congress and how elected officials are representing their, their voters?
17: Well, in some of these cases, if you're a member of the House, then you're not representing a whole state. And we've also got to remember that state parties... Each state is made up of very different governance. Uh, There are some states where the folks that are running the state party are very effective and there are other places where they are very much, uh, have sort of fringe views. And so in the case of Arizona, in the Arizona Democratic Party can do what they'd like, but uh, Senator Sinema may not be as far from the median Arizona voter uh, as they may think. This is a state that Donald Trump won in 2016, that he lost, but very narrowly in 2020. And so while she may face a primary challenge, I think no one will be more excited about that than Republicans. In a way, it reminds me a little bit of what the GOP went through in 2010 after the Tea Party movement and they suddenly got control in Congress. All of a sudden you start going, well, wait a minute, we have this majority. Why can't we take it out for a spin? And anyone who seems too establishment or moderate or standing in your way begins to really draw your ire. So this is something that's all too familiar to Republicans, but as you've noted, It's not something that went away very quickly either.
0: And Van, um, one of the most prominent progressives in the Senate, Bernie Sanders, uh, said this to my colleague, Dana Bash, on Sunday. Take a listen.
16: It is so important that we protect American democracy, that we stand up to the big lie of Trump and his allies, that he really won the election. Uh, and, And they undermine that effort. I think what the Arizona Democrats did was exactly right.
0: So, what do you make of Bernie Sanders' rebuke of Kirsten Cinema? Does that hurt trying to keep Cinema on the Democrats' side uh, for future legislation?
13: I, I think Bernie Sanders is, Sanders is the least of her problems. She's getting rebuked by, by everybody. Emily's list, um, longtime allies of hers, um, and but the problem is when we get finished rebuking her, we still have the same problem, which is uh, both sides now are very concerned about going into an election. Uh, the Republicans think that uh, we're going to try to cheat. We think that they're trying to cheat. And you still have a leadership of, of vacuum. She should use this moment. If there's something she wants to do in voting rights that she thinks she can get a bipartisan majority for, the Electoral Count Act or anything else, she should raise her hand and say so. Otherwise, she she is going to get run over and deserve to get run over. Uh, leading, Stopping uh, uh, your party from getting something done is not leadership. Getting something done is leadership. And we yet to see that from Christian Sinema.
0: And, Kristen, uh, Donald Trump uh, intervened early in a few key midterm races. He endorsed Sean Parnell in Pennsylvania for Senate. Parnell uh, dropped out already. Representatives Ted Budd in North Carolina, Mo Brooks in Alabama, both those candidates currently struggling uh, against more establishment Republicans, according to The Washington Post. What does this tell you about, about Trump's reign over the GOP or maybe his candidate selection?
17: Well, this doesn't surprise me. And if you've been paying close enough attention, it it shouldn't surprise you either. I mean, somebody like Lauren Boebert, for instance, Donald Trump didn't endorse her. In fact, Donald Trump endorsed her opponent, uh, Madison Cawthorn in North Carolina. Donald Trump didn't endorse him. He endorsed his opponent. Um, so Donald Trump does not have a, an unblemished record in Republican primaries. It's certainly true that he is enormously influential and that there are places like Ohio, for instance, where there's an enormous fight to try to marshal his support, try to pull in his voters. You don't want to be on the wrong side of Trump necessarily. But there are plenty of examples of folks who said, look, maybe I'm not the one Donald Trump endorsed, but I support his agenda. I'm a fighter. And that may be enough for a lot of Republican voters who are not necessarily just about one man, but are about ideas, about a fighting style, whatever it may be. Um, It means that Donald Trump's endorsement does not mean you are guaranteed to win a primary.
0: And Van, we've heard a lot of conspiracy theories and anti-vax nonsense uh, from people on the right. But this weekend, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. participated in an anti-vaccine rally in Washington, D.C., and he actually likened vaccine mandates to Nazi Germany, actually saying it, that they're worse than Nazi Germany. Um, the Auschwitz Memorial tweeted his remarks are, quote, a sad symptom of moral and intellectual decay. I mean, he said something so stupid. He said something like, even in Nazi Germany, that you could flee and go over the Alps or hide in an attic like Anne Frank. I, I, I mean, I, it's so stupid, I don't even know what to say about it. Why is there so much yeah, acceptability? Like, why- this is accepted now, uh, not just on the on the MAGA right, but on you know the, the anti-vaccine left.
13: Um, I, I just I I, <clears throat> I, I was speechless. I, I know him quite well. He actually uh, endorsed my first book. I I've, I've worked with him on environmental issues. I I don't recognize this guy. Um, I don't recognize him. I don't understand uh, what he thinks he's doing. You can have legitimate questions or concerns about any uh, uh, pharmaceutical product, but you don't bring in Anne Frank to make your point um, that, that this, this is we're you're debasing one of the most horrific crimes against humanity to make a political point about a medical product. You just don't do that. He knows better. I don't understand it. It was, it was bewildering.
0: Yeah. yeah, he's been spreading a lot of anti-vaccine nonsense, and he's a menace to public health. Van Jones and, and Kristen Salty Sanderson, thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. An NBA Hall of Famer's anti-mask, anti-vax, anti-science comments gets him benched. That's next. There's a In our sports lead, you may remember him as a member of the very first dream team from the 1992 Olympics or from the NBA records he set in nearly two decades with the Utah Jazz, but now Basketball Hall of Famer John Stockton is earning headlines for a less glamorous reason after his alma mater, Gonzaga University, suspended his basketball season tickets because Stockton refuses to follow the school's mask mandate at games. As CNN's Natasha Chen reports for us now, Stockton's refusal to mask up is just the tip of the anti-science iceberg.
18: Hall of Fame NBA player John Stockton may be the most recognizable basketball player to come out of Gonzaga University in eastern Washington. Great pass. But the nation's top-ranked college men's team is now booting its own hero from its home court. The 59-year-old Stockton, who went on to become the NBA all-time leader in assists and steals, told the Spokesman Review that the school said it was going to have to, quote, ask me to wear a mask or they were going to suspend
19: my tickets. Gonzaga, um, it's come a long ways. Very, uh, very proud to be a Zag.
18: As Omicron surged over the holidays, Gonzaga, like some other schools across the country, stopped serving food and drinks at games in the new
12: year. So there was no excuse to drop your mask. Turner Sports
18: and NCAA.com reporter Andy Katz said that's when an unmasked Stockton stood out, refusing to put a mask on when an usher asked him to.
19: Chris
12: Staniford, who is a new athletic director at Gonzaga within this last year, spoke with John Stockton and basically laid it out for him. This is our policy. You can either mask or not attend.
18: Gonzaga University also requires people 12 and up to show proof of vaccination or a negative COVID test to enter athletic events. And the school follows Washington State's mask mandate, a requirement for virtually all attendees 5 and up, regardless of vaccination status. The university gave CNN this statement, saying that it continues to work hard to implement health and safety protocols and would not speak to specific actions taken with any specific individuals. CNN has tried to reach Stockton, but has not heard back. This standoff on masks follows Stockton's appearance last year in a nine-part conspiracy theory-driven video series.
19: This isn't a, a virus cheating us of this opportunities. It's the guys making decisions, saying, no, no, we're too scared. We're going to shut everything down, sit in your house and be careful. My kids and my grandkids hearing these things and accepting them as truth, and when I know by my significant amount of research that it isn't,
18: he told the Spokesman Review in an interview published on Saturday that he believes, quote, it's over 100 professional athletes dead. Professional athletes, the prime of their life, dropping dead that are vaccinated. Right on the pitch, right on the field, right on the court.
12: If something like that were to happen, we would know, we would, we would know of that already. And so-
18: Professor Richard Carpiano says effective measures are in place to watch for potential adverse reactions to vaccines. The CDC requires healthcare workers to report deaths and other adverse effects following vaccination even if it's not clear whether the vaccine was the cause. The CDC says reports of serious issues are rare. So Stockton's claim
12: is really quite dangerous and it puts people at harm, it puts his fans at harm, and it's going to get people sick and unfortunately someone is going to die too.
18: Pandemic politics are playing out right now, especially in indoor sports like basketball, where COVID restrictions are stricter than in outdoor arenas. And the NCAA does not regulate policies for regular season games, leaving schools to play COVID protocol referee.
12: It's not just by conference. It is by state. This has been occurring across the country, basically in a blue, red, purple divide. A divide even as the
18: pandemic marches on.
12: This is the boat that we're all in together, including John Stockton.
18: This is the second major controversy in eastern Washington over sports and COVID protocols. Last fall, Washington State University fired its football coach in Pullman there for not following the state requirement for all state employees to be vaccinated. This is all happening in a state that has had relatively stricter COVID protocols compared to some other parts of the U.S. and where Western Washington is far more left-leaning. So just another example of very tricky COVID politics playing out in each region, Jake.
0: Natasha Chan, thanks so much. Uh, Here to discuss is CNN Chief Medical Correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, we're nearly two years into this pandemic and you see it out there. Patience is wearing thin for a lot of Americans. Uh, Opinion journalist Barry Weiss uh, is getting some pushback uh, and praise for telling HBO's Bill Maher that she is done with COVID. Take a listen.
14: We were told you get the vaccine, you get the vaccine and you get back to normal. And We haven't gotten back to normal. This is going to be remembered by the younger generation as a catastrophic moral crime. The city of Flint, Michigan, which is 80%, I think, minority students, has just announced indefinite virtual schooling. It's a pandemic of bureaucracy. It's not not real anymore.
0: What was your reaction when you heard that?
19: My reaction was, it it is real. (laughs) It, it is very real. I mean, it is, it's whiplash sometimes, Jake, working in a hospital and seeing what's going on in hospitals. They're overwhelmed. ERs are full. Can't get beds for your patients, COVID or not. Uh, and then to come out of the hospital and hear remarks like that, it's, it's absolutely real. It feels like whiplash. I mean, the catastrophic moral failure, Jake, and you and I have been talking about this for more than two years, is that 10,000 people died last week. Most of them didn't need to. Most of them were preventable deaths or stupid deaths. That's the catastrophic moral failure. Hundreds of thousands of people have died over the last, you know, I mean, since the vaccines even rolled out, hundreds of thousands of people have died preventable deaths. That's the catastrophic moral failure. I mean, kids are going to say, hey, you know, in a few years from now, so let me get this straight. My loved one is not here, but they could have been if they got vaccinated, didn't get vaccinated because of politics. That's that's a moral failure. And I mean, that's the biggest one. And that's something we have to contend with and hopefully learn from because we may have to apply these lessons sometime again soon.
0: Well, I think Barry was talking about specifically about closing schools when, you know, you and I have been discussing literally since the middle of 2020, the need to have schools open for psychological uh, and emotional and academic reasons, as long as they can be opened uh, safely. But but putting that aside for one second, the school issue what do you say to people like like Barry Weiss who say, look, I followed all the rules. I got vaccinated. I got boosted. I am ready to be done with this.
19: Well, I mean, and right. There's there's two issues here you're bringing up. One is be done with it, which we're not done with it, which was the thing that really struck me about the comments is that we're not done with it. I mean, there's you know 10,000 people who died last week with regard to schools. Yes, I think that there has been plenty of science that has emerged over the last year and a half to show that schools can be open safely with regard to you know people who are vaccinated i think the, the story the thing that they should feel some comfort in hopefully is that they are so well protected against getting sick i mean maybe that's an obvious thing at this point i realize that the desire is to go back to normal but i remember my parents before they got vaccinated jake they were worried because they saw so many of their friends die they were worried that that could be them if you look at the the, the line graphs and see what's happening you know again between the unvaccinated and vaccinated in this country it's clear Uh, you want to be on the green line. So that's what I would tell vaccinated people. Uh, We are going to get back to normal. We're going to do it together. It's probably going to happen fairly soon based on the way the data is trending. But right now, you'd much rather be on that green line than the red one.
0: At what point uh, do you think society will accept COVID as something that is endemic? It's a virus that we live with. And maybe every year or two, we have to get a shot uh, in the same way that, that we live with the flu.
19: I think that point's going to be probably when hospitals are, are not overwhelmed. I mean, I, I know that that's a little bit vague, but I mean, I think that ends up being the truest and most accurate impact on a society uh, right now in many places around the country. It may be getting better in some, but, you know, here in the South, it's, it's steady in terms of hospitalizations, even gone up a little bit over the past uh, couple of weeks, and it was already very high. I think, you know, it's going to be an uncomfortable sort of reality, even if you look at flu, um, Jake, you know, you know, 60,000 people die of flu every year. That ended up being what was acceptable. 40,000 people died of COVID in January alone so far. So we're not there yet, but it's going to be, I think, mainly when hospitals and, and hospitalizations come down.
0: Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. Appreciate it as always. President Biden just had quite a hot mic moment. We'll bring it to you next. Just in, President Biden lashing out at a reporter with some rather colorful language just moments ago during a meeting about inflation. Reporters peppered Biden with questions about Ukraine. And growing increasingly frustrated with the line of questioning, he said this in response to a reporter's question about inflation's impact on the midterm elections. The reporter, we should note, is from Fox.
6: You are- Do you think inflation is a political liability? That's,
3: That's a great asset. More inflation. More inflation a stupid
0: son of a bitch. So just to spell it out, let me bring in CNN's Caitlin Collins, who was just in the room when that happened. So, so uh, Peter Ducey from Fox uh, says, do you think inflation is a political liability in the midterms? And Biden says to himself, as if he doesn't know there's a microphone there, no, it's a great asset, more inflation. What a stupid son of a bitch.
1: And Jake, we should note, this is a meeting that the president was having with top members of his his administration, his cabinet in there, in the room, for this competition council. And actually, when he had finished uh, wrapping up his remarks and then he was about to move on to his aides to make their remarks as they were going to go around the room and the press was leaving the room, I asked the president about his call earlier today with the European leaders on this unfolding crisis that's happening in Ukraine and he actually complained saying that he wanted the questions to be about what was happening and about this meeting and the purpose of the meeting and the fact that it was on this competition council and so then it was when Peter Ducey from Fox News asked him about inflation being a political liability. Of course, that is something we do know Democrats are worried about it being a political liability for them. Clearly, the president uh, did not like that question and responded in kind. This is something that, of course, you know, the White House has talked about, that inflation is a problem for them. And and while there are limited things they can do to try to get it under control, they've tried to take steps to do that. It's at a 40-year high. It has thwarted some of their biggest policy goals, including when Senator Manchin said over the Christmas break he wasn't going to vote and move ahead with the president's domestic agenda with that climate and economic bill because of inflation. Inflation, in part, and so I think all of that has played into that. Clearly, a, president, a question that the president did not want to answer. And we should note he was speaking on a microphone. He had just made remarks to the room for about ten or so minutes on this competitive council that they have formed here at the White House, and was pretty. It seemed pretty clear he knew he was on a mic, Jake.
0: Yeah, and the microphone is literally right in front of him. He had. It's not as though he was walking in a back room and he forgot that he had one clipped on his his lapel. It was right in front of him. This is, of course, a president who uh, when he was vice president in front of the world, went into President Obama and told him that uh, Obamacare passing was a big effing deal. Again, a hot mic moment. Um, but th- this one seemed a little bit more uh, blatant even.
1: Well, Jake, I think the irony also is that the president was saying he wanted questions on the topic at hand. Inflation is related to this council because, of course, that is something that they are trying to solve, something they're trying to talk about. It plays into the larger conversation about it. And then when he got that question, That was how he responded, Jake.
0: Yeah, he's having a rough time of it. Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Turning to our national lead, opening statements in the federal civil trial of three former Minneapolis police officers indicted in connection with George Floyd's killing in 2020. Prosecutors say the officers deprived Floyd of his civil rights as they stood by and watched their convicted colleague Derek Chauvin kneel on Floyd's neck. CNN's Omar Jimenez joins us now live in St. Paul, Minnesota. Omar, uh, tell us about the tone in court today.
15: Yeah, Jake. Well, for starters, the tone took everyone right back to May 2020, the day Derek Chauvin murdered George Floyd. On the legal side, today was opening statements, so we heard from the prosecution and the defense their main arguments in this case. The prosecution largely stuck to the charges that former officers tao, Thomas Lane, and Alex King are facing, that they were deliberately indifferent to Floyd's medical needs when he was under the knee of Derek Chauvin, and that at least King and Tau failed to intervene and stop Derek Chauvin. Now, specifically, the prosecutor said that each one of these defendants had an opportunity to take their knee, had a choice, I should say, over and over again. They chose not to intervene and stop Chauvin as he killed a man. They chose not to protect George Floyd, the man they handcuffed, and then went on to tell the jury what to expect. You will see when the ambulance arrived, it was the paramedics and not the defendants who told Chauvin to get off. All of these officers have pleaded not guilty to these charges. And critically, Jake, we learned that one of these ex-officers, Thomas Lane, does plan to testify as part of this trial.
0: All right. Omar Jimenez on the case for us in St. Paul. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Getting your refund could be extra taxing this year Why the IRS is already warning that we should expect delays. Stay with us. And I'm money Lee, just in time for today's official start of income tax filing season. The IRS is warning, you might have to wait longer to get your refund. As CNN's Gabe Cohen reports for us now, the COVID pandemic, a backlog of returns from last year, and a worker shortage may add up to long delays for you.
2: A warning from the IRS, expect another frustrating tax filing season marked by processing problems and refund delays. The agency is in crisis, facing a backlog of close to 10 million returns.
19: We're working as hard as we can.
2: Now dealing with new staffing problems from COVID and wage competition, with nearly 200 job openings posted on their website, on top of a long list of other issues like outdated software, tedious paper filings, and most notably, a lack of sufficient funding. Since 2010, the number of tax returns is up 19 percent. But the agency's funding and staffing are down close to 20 percent.
0: I think it all boils down to funding.
2: John Koskinen was IRS commissioner under President Obama.
0: If you have to call or you have to respond to a
7: notice from the IRS, that's when the problems begin.
2: Last year, the IRS only answered 11 percent of customer calls, with many waiting hours to get through. Meanwhile, tax filing is getting more complicated in the pandemic, with new programs around COVID relief and child tax credits. Traffic to the IRS website nearly tripled in 2020 and rose again last year. Now, millions of taxpayers are still waiting for their refund.
19: It's been frustrating.
2: Paul Wansing and his family need that $7,000. He's on disability and his wife runs a small business.
0: Knowing that it's out there and we can't access it and we could really use that money right now is a challenge. I think it's urgent.
2: The Build Back Better plan would include $80 billion to strengthen the IRS. But with the bill stalled in the Senate, the White House is now calling on Congress to provide another source of stable funding.
17: The agency has not been equipped with the resources it needs to adequately serve taxpayers in normal times, let alone during a pandemic.
2: Everyone's stuck. Janice She runs a low-income taxpayer clinic in Maryland. They've seen a huge spike in demand.
18: We're trying to help these low-income individuals, but we can't always get
14: answers either from the IRS.
2: It's been really stressful. Jasmine Jones is days away from delivering her third child, and she's been waiting for her $11,000 refund since before she was pregnant.
1: And we have racks and racks of bills just
2: to catch up on. To avoid delays this season, the IRS is urging people to file early and electronically, use direct deposit, collect all documents before starting, and make sure everything's accurate, especially with stimulus payments and the child tax credits, all to avoid a frustrating wait.
18: It makes me think that I won't receive it this year.
2: And as tax season gets underway today, again, the IRS says file as soon as possible. The deadline for most people is set for April 18th, and they are not expecting that to be delayed, Jake, even if some refunds might be.
0: All right, Gabe Cohen, thanks so much. As always, appreciate it. Coming up, it's one million miles from Earth, and it's so powerful it can see back to the creation of the universe. Stay with us. Finally from us today in our out-of-this-world lead, just a month after its launch, the James Webb Space Telescope has reached its final destination. It is now almost one million miles from Earth. The next step in its journey will... Turn the $10 billion spacecraft into a functioning telescope. Webb will be 100 times more powerful than Hubble, allowing the telescope to observe objects at far greater distances than has ever been possible before, which scientists hope will give us more information about the earliest stages of the universe. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show At The Lead CNN, if you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. I will be on Jimmy Kimmel later this evening. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room.
2: Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that.